We are in the third sermon of a series called Thy Kingdom Come. It's a seven-week sermon series, and it's, um, we, we've done this to prepare our hearts for, for Advent, for Christmas. And Advent means to prepare um, or, um, to, or, or coming, if you will. And, um, and as I was thinking about um, this sermon series and my Sunday today to preach, um, I thought about <laughs> how impossible it really is, actually, and how I need God's um, help. Um, we, um, Chris kicked us off so well two weeks ago and as he talked about um, God's kindness in creation. And then Pat uh, last week talked about the fall in, uh, out of uh, Genesis 2 and 3. Um, and I'll talk about today from basically um, Cain and Abel to uh, Solomon. So Chris got seven days of history Pat got maybe a month or two, and I've got a thousand years. So you can pray for me that, uh, that the Lord would really help, um, that you'd be encouraged. And I have been encouraged through my study. One of my um, prayers is that um, I wouldn't so much master God's Word, but that God's Word would master me. I just, uh, I want to be changed uh, from the inside out. And I really feel like the Lord did a work in my heart through this uh, crazy section of Scripture, Matthew 1, 1 through 16. And I've titled the sermon today, A Genealogy of a King. How many of you um, have studied your own genealogy? Have, have any of you done that? A few of you have. And, and oftentimes, those of us that study our genealogy, we're either later in life, or we've got, uh, maybe, maybe might be adopted, um, or you just know, like me, how um, weird and dysfunctional you are, and you know there's got to be a reason for it. So you, you go back into your family tree, hoping that, that, there'll be, that there'll be answers, and that they're not all dead or in prison. And um, most of mine are. I know they're not, actually. Um, I've got a good, good family. Um, but you and I, are a product of our genealogy. You're, we're a product of our DNA in, in many ways. Um, my personality, my physical build, the, the other traits that I have, my eyes being too close together, are a result of the DNA that I received from uh, my parents and their parents and their parents before them. Um, my guess is that, my, um, that when I look at my father, for example, my father is going to be 83, I look at him and he talks like me. He walk, or I, I talk like him. I walk like him. I got some of the same uh, mannerisms. When I look at my son Mitch and Joey, unfortunately for them, that we've got, they've got some of the same traits as me. They got the same look. They got the same walk. They got the same talk. They got the same beautiful wives. Um, the whole bit, and it all comes, it all comes somehow down through um, DNA. Today we're going to take a high-level view, a very high-level view of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And as we look at his lineage, we're going to see how God used imperfect people to preserve Jesus' genealogical line to bring salvation to a hopeless humanity. And I hope that we also see God's patience with you and I and all of humanity, his rebellious creation. I've talked to a few of you recently that are having a hard time engaging with Christmas this year. Um, that you, you've, you've really wanted to um, observe Advent and to prepare your heart for this Christmas season, season but, you're, but you're, having a, you're having a hard time. And, uh, and I think I can relate with that at some level as well. I think we all can. There's so, much, so many distractions, so much busyness, so much commercialization that it's, um, it's hard to really focus on that one moment in history and the magnitude of importance that that one moment was for you and I and for all of humanity. So my prayer is, is that as we take this high-level view, that, that you and I would um, worship our king and prepare for the celebration of his birth like never before. I pray that it would help you and I better understand his patience, understand his love, understand his relentless pursuit to build his kingdom, where we would, where we would know our king in the most personal of ways. I also pray that this would fuel your hope in his past, present, and future promises to you and I, his children. As I mentioned, Advent means to wait or prepare, and our ancestors waited thousands of years for the, the promised Messiah. They waited um, for the king to come for thousands of years. And as we looked at God's promises of salvation 
to his people, we need to ask the question, why did God wait so long? Why didn't he just save? I mean, why didn't he just save humanity right after Adam and Eve sent? It's a good question. Why did he wait so long to make his plan of salvation clear and reestablish his kingdom? I'm not 100% sure. But here's what I think. It, it, it seems like the best answer is so that he can dist, uh, d, uh, demonstrate for all time, for all of eternity, that salvation was not in any way achieved through human effort. God allowed human institutions to come to nothing so that we would be forever, so it would be forever clear that salvation was entirely by his power in his grace. And as I look at this genealogy, as I look at um, everything that had to happen, the, the sinfulness of humanity, the fallen institutions, it was only by his power and grace. There's nothing that you and I could do to save ourselves. We couldn't be good enough. This time of year, we can't do enough good deeds to make us feel good about ourselves. Well, it might make us feel good about ourselves, but it's not going to change God's view of us. We're going to clearly see in this genealogical overview the twin truth of God's love and God's wrath. As Pat told us last week and reminded us that God is both just and he is the justifier. In Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God is a holy God and he has to punish sin. He has to punish sin, but God is also infinitely loving. And in his infinite love, he provided a punishment for us, a propitiation for us, a sacrifice, somebody that stood in our place and took the, uh, the, uh, the wrath of the Father that you and I deserved. And we won't fully understand the Bible without reading it from cover to cover. There are so many, beware, there are so many Bible studies out there and there are so many Bible teachers that take um, one cool verse in a book and try to explain what it means without giving the context of what comes before it and what comes after it. I'm not just talking about the paragraph before it and the paragraph after it. I'm talking about the chapter and the book before it. That we need to know how all of Scripture fits together. Von Roberts says this. He says, the Bible's one book about one person and one subject. The Bible obviously covers a great deal of ground, but there is one supreme subject that binds it all together. Jesus Christ and the salvation God offers only through him. Speaking of the Old Testament, Jesus said in John 5.39, these are Scriptures that testify about me. Which Scriptures was he talking about? He was talking about the Old Testament. And it is an impossible task to understand the Old Testament without ever opening the New Testament. You will forever be lost in no man's land. You will forever have a wrong view of God and of Scripture until you read the Bible in its entirety. The fact that the Bible is one book should have implications on the way we read it. So, for example, we don't read a Tolkien novel in the same way that we read a book of quotations or the same way that we read a dictionary. The complainer of the quotes doesn't expect you and I to read the quote before and the quote after. They are simply pasted on a piece of paper with no context unifying them. In a novel, it works differently. If I'm going to understand the story, I need to know what happened before and also learn what happened afterwards. And the same, brothers and sisters, as many of you know, it's the same with the Bible. Each verse needs to be understood in the context of the chapter in which it appears, and each chapter in the light of the book as a whole, and that book as a whole and the whole of Scripture needs to be understood. So we have a, a goal today in today's sermon. I've got, to, I've got two goals for today's sermon. One is to better understand the outline of the Bible and the theme of and the theme that unifies the entire book, all 66 books. Two is to help you and I worship this Christmas season as we contemplate God's love and his relentless pursuit to build his kingdom. The Bible is a story of the king and his kingdom. Chris mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the kingdom theme runs throughout the entire Bible. Even though God does not refer to himself as a king in the creation narrative, we do see in Genesis, about halfway through Genesis, that he starts talking about a coming king and a coming kingdom. 
And the thread that runs through this kingdom, the thread that runs through it, is that is God's rule over God's people in God's place, enjoying God's blessing. And if you're here this morning, and you want more blessing in your life, this passage, this, this section of scripture, I guess there's really no section, this sermon today is going to tell you how to be blessed. And I'll just give you a hint. It's living under God's rule. It's living in his kingdom, uh, subjecting yourself, or living in subjection, if you will, to his good and perfect rule. The Bible begins with God making the world very good. And without the cor- it had no corruption, no decay, no death that now dominates the world. He created human beings. He created you and I as his masterpiece. We are his pinnacle of creation. We were made in his image to reflect his glory. We were created to know God, not just know about him, but to know him and to have a relationship with him. As he told us, he told us to be fruitful and multiply. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. He gave them everything they needed to enjoy, and he gave us and gave them dominion over all of good creation. We were created as God's people, living under God's rule in God's place, enjoying God's blessing. But you know the story. Instead of choosing, I picked that word purposely, instead of choosing to live under God's rule, we weren't able to choose to be in God's kingdom, but we can choose whether to live under his rule or not. But instead of choosing to live under God's rule where blessing is found, we turned away to live self-centered lives. And because of our relationship with God, it's been broken. All of our other relationships with other human beings and with all of the created world has also been ruptured. The result is spiritual, physiological, social, and physical decay and breakdown. Everything has fallen apart. You thought that all the bad news was over last week. God's pattern for his kingdom is pretty simple. Here's God's part. He made us his people. He put us in his place to enjoy his blessings and to have a relationship with him and with others and with our environment. Our part, to live under his rule in obedience to his, to his word. That's our part. To live under his rule in obedience to his law or his word. Being tempted by Satan, Adam and Eve, being tempted by Satan who took on the appearance of a snake, Adam and Eve, our first parents, chose to believe the snake and disobey God's directive to not eat of the one tree in the garden, the good, the, the, the tree of good and evil. But because God is just, he must now punish their sin. This punishment is referred to as a curse. You see, God is holy. There is no sin on the planet that he won't punish. Every sin will be punished. And we'll get to the good news in a bit here. God cursed the serpent by telling the serpent, Satan, that that his offspring and her offspring, Eve's offspring, would hate each other. And the key word here for this entire sermon is offspring or seed, if you will. This is important. This God promises to do with the very first announcement of his design for a messianic deliverer, a descendant, an offspring, or a seed of the woman, a seed or an offspring who would ultimately crush Satan and his sin and, the pow- and his influence and the power of sin. And this gracious promise becomes an organizing theme for the rest of Scripture and the rest of hum- human history. As every character and every event find their place in relationship to the great battle that now unfolds between the conquering seed of the woman and of Satan. It was Adam and Eve's disobedience, just like it's our disobedience, our unbelief in God's word that resulted in a fractured relationship with God, a fractured relationship with each other, and a fractured relationship with, with, uh, with our environment. And as a result, we were exiled from the garden. Humanity is no longer God's people who enjoy God's blessing. Um, our sin, their sin, infected all of humanity for all time. Listen to Romans 5, 12-14. You see, you see, humanity is not innately or inherently good. We're not. I mean, God, there's goodness in us. There's common grace. I mean, I, some, of, some of my best friends on the planet are unbelievers. There's just a a goodness in them. But there's not a goodness in humanity that saves them 
or unites them um, with their Savior. And this is, what, this is what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, that's spiritual and physical life, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Who sinned? All sinned. But when we take a closer look at the garden, Pat looked at this last week, we see that even in God's just punishment of sins, he extends grace. Adam and Eve, after realizing the, the shame of their nakedness, if you remember, they clothed themselves in fig leaves. And the first thing God does is he clothes them in the animal skins. And that is a, that is a precursor or a, or a sign of a future and greater sacrifice. The fact that he clothed them with animal skins points to a future sacrifice of a spotless one who would pay for the sins of all of mankind. So Adam and Eve are no longer God's people living in God's place and enjoying his blessing. But they do have a promise of his future, of a future salvation to both believe in and to hold on to. So you may remember just after Adam and Eve, we're going to pick up speed as we go through this. They had kids. Their oldest child was Cain. Their second child was Abel. Cain killed Abel. It didn't take long to see that that sin and the wickedness of the world was was being manifest in real ways after that. Then after Cain killed Abel, Seth was born. And it's through Seth that that the seed or the offspring of the serpent crusher would continue. And then it brings us to Noah. And evil in the world was obvious right out of the gates. And God saw that wickedness in Genesis 6, the wickedness of man, and he regretted making humanity. He regretted it and he determined to blot out all of humanity except one man, Noah, and his family. And it's because Noah was a really good guy and he did everything right. Not. He was a righteous man, it says, but his righteousness was by faith in a future redeemer. It had nothing to do with his goodness. If he had goodness, it was a result of who he was in the future redeemer. So God did, in fact, destroy the earth, but because of his graciousness, he preserved the line of Adam and Eve and of Shem through the seed of Noah that would one day, not Shem, go back to uh, Seth. Shem comes after Noah. So he preserved the line of Adam and Eve through Noah that would one day produce the serpent crusher through Noah's son, Shem. And then then God gives a covenant promise to Noah. And this is a covenant promise of common grace. Even for people that don't know Jesus, even for people who hate Jesus, there is common grace. That God is holding the whole world together by his common grace. That everybody gets to enjoy the sunsets of the mountains. Everybody gets to enjoy babies. Everybody gets to enjoy relationship. That's common grace. And then God said that he will never destroy the earth again by a flood. And actually, that rainbow, every time you see a rainbow, you can take heart that he will never destroy the world again, period. Until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. So let the rainbow be an encouragement that, that God's timing is perfect, that he is exercising patience. And let the rainbow be a motivator to share the gospel while there's still time to share the gospel before he comes again to destroy the earth, this time to burn it up. God promises his continued faithfulness to bring forth a savior, even though you and I and all of humanity continue in our sinful ways. The genealogy of the future serpent crusher continues through Noah's son Shem, as I already said, and eventually through a man named Abram who would be known as Abraham. God selects Abraham from among the nations and makes promises to him that will eventually restore blessing to all humanity. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, in the covenant to Abraham, the Lord says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's covenant promise to Abraham contains several elements. One is, is that Abraham will become a great nation. 
Two is, is in him, in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this is talking about a salvation blessing. That through Abraham, people will be restored to a right relationship with their creator. And three is, is that Abraham's offspring will inherit a piece of land. And we see that in Genesis 12, verse 7, uh, amongst some other places. God, in essence, is promising that Abraham's descendants will once again be God's people living in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. And like all Old Testament revelation, the truth becomes clearer as we continue to read Scripture. This is called progressive revelation. If, if you want, you can't, if you were to open your Bible and read Genesis 12, 1 through 3 and stop there, I guarantee you, you're going to have a different view of end times and what's going to happen than I have. And I'm not saying that you've got to end up where I'm at. I'm not going to tell you where I'm at, quite honestly, because it doesn't matter. I'm actually pan-trip. That means that it's all going to pan out in the end. Those who put faith in Christ. But I'm telling you, though, that if you, if, you, um, if you look at a verse like this without seeing what the New Testament writers have to say with it, you're going to end in the wrong destination. You could end in the wrong destination anyways, but it's guaranteed you'll end in the wrong destination unless you get on the right trailhead. And the right trailhead is determined by the New Testament. God chooses Abraham and his wife Sarah a uh, young couple like many of you in this congregation. No, he chose a couple like Abram and Sarah, like, like me and Nancy, that are past the childbearing age. Actually, much older than Nancy and I. And he, he chose them past the childbearing age to display his gracious provision of a Savior that would restore blessing to God's people. But after waiting for years for God to deliver or to get Sarah pregnant, to have Abraham get Sarah pregnant, they take things into their own hands. And Sarah gives her Egyptian servant Hagar to Abraham so that she can bear his child. And the issue here in this passage is not immorality. That's not the point. The point is unfaithfulness. The point is that Abraham and Sarah, like Adam and Eve before them, did not believe God. And they took things into their own hand. And then Ishmael is born by Hagar. And God makes it clear that Ishmael, the son born to Hagar, would not be the son of promised blessing. Still, God graciously affirms his covenant promise to Abraham. It will be through Sarah's son, who will be called Isaac, that all the nations would be blessed. And I want to just say this. I think I said it later in the sermon last time, but just so I don't forget, I was reading an article about an Arab man that is a Christian. And he says that, he says, my, my um, American Christian friends think that it's, it's a, um, that it's hard for Arabs and, um, and um, uh, Muslims to come to Christ. And here's why they think that, okay? Because they, they see that, that Abraham that the, the seed of promise was through Isaac, right? We're going to see it all the way through. The seed of promise is through Isaac and through Jacob and through Judah, then through David, then through Solomon, then all the way through um, to, uh, to, to Joseph and Mary. But the other son, Ishmael, that's where we know that the line, the Arabian line, the, is the, the Muslim line came from. We know that. You can trace that back. But what it does, you see, the seed, the, the offspring, has to do with Jesus, the Savior. It has nothing to do with who's going to be saved. So there's a whole family tree that branches really from Adam and Eve, and certainly branches from Abraham off of Ishmael, of people that have, a, um, that have been grafted in, that can put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, just like anybody from the line of Israel. Amen. And I think we get that confused sometimes. I think we get confused that people living in Palestine some have, have a, 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 a lesser opportunity to be saved than people in Israel. They're people God died for. The blessing, as we're going to see, is for every, as we just read, is for every nation. That Abraham will be a blessing to every nation. nation. I will bless those who bless you, and him who, him who dishonors you I will, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham and Sarah take things into their hands. But God is gracious 
and he gives him a son, Isaac. But this pattern continues generation after generation. God continues the line of promise despite barren women and the faithfulness of his people. And God is demonstrating that the promise of salvation will be achieved by his power and his grace. There's nothing that mankind can do to save himself. God achieves his purposes not on the back of human achievement, but through his undeserving grace. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It is true, you need to take it to the bank. That there's nothing that you and I could do. There's no line we could have been born in. There's no country that we could have been born in. There's no parents that we could have been born in that guarantees our salvation. And that every one of us has hearts that are exceedingly wicked. Later on in the storyline... Genesis 22, 18, God reiterates that it will be through Abraham's offspring that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And at this time, the story does not clarify whether this offspring refers to an entire family or nation of Abraham or to one specific descendant. And we'll need to keep reading to hear how this promise is fulfilled. And you're not going to get all the answers today, by the way, because we've got four more sermons. Abraham's son Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the Lord reaffirms his covenant to Isaac in Genesis 35. And God said to him, God said to Jacob, he says, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. You see, Jacob was fruitful and multiplied. He had 12 sons, which later became the 12 tribes of Israel. However, through God's providence and the sin of Jacob's sons, they cooperated. God actually used their sin for good. They were no longer living in Canaan. You see, they were in the promise land. They were no longer in Canaan. and Instead, because of God's providence and the sin of the sons, the entire clan of Israel relocated to Egypt as a result of the famine that was happening in Canaan. And the storyline traces the promised offspring from Abraham to his great-grandson Judah. Not Joseph, like many of us think. His great-grandson Judah, one of Jacob's sons. In Genesis 49, Judah receives a promise from his father as he was dying. A promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world is going to follow this king who would bring peace and harmony with God. Harmony with one another and peace and harmony eventually with all of creation. You see, the first king that we meet from the line of Judah is none other than King David. But before we get to King David, let's take a look at what happens to the nation of Israel while they're in Egypt. They're they're stuck in Egypt for 400 years. In Exodus 1 verse 7 tells us this, the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. That's what they were supposed to do. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land of Egypt was filled with them. They were fruitful and they multiplied. As God told Adam, as God told Noah, as God told Abraham. The problem was that they were perceived as a threat to Egypt's kingdom. In Exodus chapter 1 verses 8 through 13, it says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So they ruthlessly, the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It looked as though God's covenant promise to the Israelites being a great nation, occupying the promised land, and being a blessing to all the other nations was fading. Or was it? After 400 years in captivity, the Israelites in captivity and being oppressed called out to God that God would rescue them. And this is actually, this is a picture, this is a foretaste of our salvation because we were helplessly in bondage and in slavery to the power of Satan and the power of sin. 
In Exodus 6, 1 through 7, we see that God heard their cry and he promised to rescue them from slavery by his grace and by their power, nothing that they did. God heard the groaning of Israel and acted by his grace and power to keep his covenant promises that he made to Abraham and his descendants. And then he reiterates his covenant promise that they would be his people and he would be their God. They would be set free, not just from slavery, but they'd be set free to know God, to know him in the most personal of ways. And it goes with our salvation too. We haven't been just saved from the penalty of sin to one day be in heaven with him. We've been saved from, the, from slavery and oppression to sin and Satan so that we can enjoy a relationship with them now, right now, here and today. And here, here and today is a foretaste of what we're going to get in the future. After they were rescued from Egypt, they went through the, the Red Sea that the Lord parted and then came down on the Egyptian, Egyptians who were chasing them. On their way to the promised land, God gives them the law so that they might live under his good rule and enjoy his blessing as Adam and Eve did before they sinned. And pay attention to this because we, we get this backwards. Um, we want the law. We want the law in the schools. We want the law in our government. We want the law um, everywhere. And the law is good because the law protects. It holds back evil, but it doesn't save anybody. By having the Ten Commandments in the school, for example, that's not a bad thing on its own, but it does nothing but maybe control anarchy or have them get graffitied every once in a while. The only thing that can ultimately change the direction of any institution, of any country, or any heart is God to arrest it and to change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, to give us a new direction. And the law is primarily for those who have been um, freed from the bondage of sin and Satan. Listen to this. God gave this message to Moses to deliver to all whom he had already delivered or, or redeemed from slavery. So God gave this to Moses to give to those that had been rescued from Egypt. And this is a picture of a future salvation. Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is God speaking. And how I bore you on the eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What did God do? He saved them by his power and grace. It's nothing that they did. It's nothing that we did. Now look at verse 5. Now therefore, since I've saved you, since I've delivered you, since I've redeemed you, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commanded, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God saves us, and then he tells us to obey the law. And in obeying the law, in living in accordance to God's rule, that's where we're blessed, and that's also where there's assurance of salvation. God doesn't ask us to be perfect, but he's given us a different direction. He's given us God's spirit, which is the power, the power that they didn't have, quite frankly, to say no to sin. And after Moses delivered this from the Lord, all the, it says in verse, verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And as we're going to see, they must have had their fingers crossed. Because they, like us, did not live in perfect obedience. They couldn't. And the law actually points them to a future deliverer. The law can't save them. Obedience to the law can't save them. You see, the law was given to the people who had already been redeemed in the Exodus. God graciously and powerfully set his people free that they might know him and know his place and enjoy his rule and blessing. But throughout their journey to the promised land, they didn't trust God's covenant promise. They worshiped idols. And the final straw is when, when out of fear and disbelief, they're on the edge of the promised land. It's, it's out there. The land of milk and honey that is promised, it's there. And they see giants. They get fearful and they retreat. And they said, we're not going in. This is, what, this is what all of history past has pointed to, and they say no to it. So God punishes them. God says that, that every one of you that is aged 20 years and older is going to die in the wilderness, and you will not get to see the promised land. That was God's judgment. But all, whenever there's judgment, there's also grace. Grace. 
And at the end of those 40 years, Moses died after getting a glimpse of the promised land. And he appoints Joshua to lead his people into the promised land. And this pattern continues throughout all of humanity. God's people rebel. God brings judgment. They repent. There's peace. God's people rebel. God brings judgment. They repent. There's peace. After they possessed the promised land and after Joshua was dead and gone, God's people once again rebelled against God's rule. That same cycle is repeated again and again. And God responds by judging them and letting them be defeated by their enemies. God raises up judges or rulers who defeat their enemies and restore peace to the land, but it never lasts long. And a judge is a sign of God's grace. But judges didn't solve the problems of rebellious Israel's sin. Samuel was the very last judge in Israel. And the Lord was with him, but, but at the end of his days he appointed his two sons to be judges, and they did not walk in his ways or the Lord's ways. And the leaders of Israel got together and asked Samuel to appoint a king. They whined. They said, all the other nations have a king, we want a king. In 1 Samuel 8, 6-7 it says this, but this thing displeased Samuel, the thing that they wanted a king. This displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel. They've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, folks, they had a king, but they rejected them. God was their king, but they did not recognize him as such. This is true that they did not have a human king, but it is also false because God is the king of Israel. They wanted a king not under God, but they wanted a king to replace God. And rather than living under God's rule and doing what was right in the Lord's eyes, we're told that everyone did, every, everybody did as they saw fit. Does that sound familiar? Everybody, even in the church, folks, even in Christianity, big C, that everybody does as they see fit. That churches are changing their doctrine based on our current culture. Okay, I don't expect the unregenerate and the unrechurched to act any differently, and nor should you. But the church, these were God's redeemed that it says that everyone did as he saw fit. And may we never be a church that, that takes our foot and our hand and our heart and our head off of his word. That's the only thing we have to stand on. We need to take God at his word. And we should not wield it as a weapon at those who have yet to put their faith and trust in it. We should use it to, to lead them to Jesus Christ. And as an encouragement, as brothers and sisters in Christ who have been redeemed, to live under his good rule, where we'll have infinite blessings now and forevermore. So they asked for a king, while at the same time they were not living for or acknowledging God as their king. Remember, the request for a king was an evil thing, actually. It wasn't a good thing, because they had a king. And this is the same tendency of the human heart today, to seek safety and security in governments, in bank accounts, in human relationships, in insurance policies, in health policies. These are all good things. The government is a gift. A bank account is a gift. Life insurance is a gift. Connect Colorado, Obamacare is not such a gift. I spent three hours on the phone last week with them, again. <laughs> All kinds of things that are good, but can never ultimately deliver us. True security and happiness can only be found by God's people. True security and happiness cannot be found by the unregenerate. They can find temporary happiness and common grace in the things that we get to enjoy, but true lasting security and happiness can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. So they got an evil king. His name was Saul. He was the first king appointed, but his reign was eventually removed by the Lord and handed over to David. And we're going to finish, just so you know we're on the time, we're going to finish with David's son, Solomon. God appoints David. David was a man after God's heart. 
David was not perfect by any means, but he was a man who desired to live his life faithfully before the God. And that's, what God, that's all God asks from us. He just wants us to live faithfully before him by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to his word, repenting when we blow it, just faithfulness. And David was a man that was not perfect, but for most of his life he desired to live faithfully before God. God established David as a unifying king that brought peace and security to the land and to his people. And eventually all 12 tribes of Israel would acknowledge David as king. And David established Jerusalem as the capital city, which, and he secured peace in the land. David's desire was not to rule un, uh, um, as a replacement for God, but under God. And he brought in the ark, symbolizing God's presence and rule that followed the Israelites throughout the land, and he brought that ark into the city. The promised, land, the promised seed, the Zerah, if you will, in Hebrew, the promised line that would crush all evil and restore relationship with God and his creation started with the woman's seed. It ran through Noah. It went through, um, through Shem, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, now to King David. And, all the, and, and in David's reign, God's people were living under God's rule in God's place, enjoying God's blessing. But it was only a shadow. It was a parcel kingdom. It was not God's ultimate prophecy. And we see in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, that God prophesies a future king who is far greater than David. Verse 12, he says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall bind a house for my name. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, God promised David uh, a king and a kingdom. And this kingdom will last forever. It's an amazing promise to David that that Abraham, that was given to Abraham before. It's given clearer focus in David. You see, we've got this, this progressive revelation. If you want to know more about the Abrahamic covenant, read the the Mosaic Covenant. If you want to know more about the Mosaic Covenant, read the Davidic Covenant. If you want to know more about how all those are fulfilled, learn about the New Covenant in Jesus Christ. The promises of Eve's offspring who would crush the serpent and the power of sin are found in this future king. It's in Abraham's offspring that the blessing would come to all the earth. And in Judah's offspring, that, the, that would be the same line that would rule over all humanity. And it's the son of David, who is also the son of God, who will indeed reign forever over all the earth and in the regenerate's hearts forever. Or at least until he returns a second time and he dwells presently with us. And this prophecy to David, like many prophecies, has a near and far fulfillment. And I just want to just give this, just tuck this back in your head, that as you're reading prophecy, almost every prophecy has a, an immediate fulfillment and a eventual fulfillment. A near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And that's actually how um, we get twisted around on different types of eschatology. Did we ever talk about eschatology in this? Was that last service? Did I ever talk about the pantrip thing? We said pantrip already, right? Okay. So that was funny once, but it won't be funny twice. So I won't go there. <laughs> David is replaced by his son, near prophecy, Solomon, as a partial fulfillment. And Von Roberts says this. He says, David's son Solomon, who was born to David by Bathsheba, Uriah's dead wife, he succeeds David as king and he rules wisely. He brings unprecedented security and prosperity to the land. And the temple is built during his reign, providing a permanent symbolic dwelling place for God. The nation has never seen it so good. We've reached a pinnacle of the Old Testament. 
And it looks as now as if all the promises of God have been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The dedication, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon prays this. He says, praise be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not a word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. You see, even Solomon didn't realize that there was, that his, that he's part of the prophecy, but he doesn't realize that there's more prophecy ahead of him. God's people are living in God's paradise in the presence of their king and under his rule and blessing. The kingdom of God has come, but only partially. The promises made to Adam and Eve and the covenant made with Abraham has still not been completely fulfilled. The problem was sin. The continued disobedience of the people of Israel and their kings. And when everything was great, Solomon, in the midst of, of the pinnacle of peace and prosperity for Israel, he starts marrying foreign wives. And he starts worshiping foreign gods. So we see that neither David nor Solomon were the ultimate serpent crushers that would come from the seed in Genesis 3.15. Nor were either of them the, the great rulers that were prophesied from the tribe of Judah and promised in Genesis 49. And we come to the end. Solomon dies. And he's replaced by his son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam oppresses the people once again. So a man by the name of Jeroboam leads a rebellion and the kingdom divides in two. The twelve tribes that were in unity divide in two. Ten tribes move to the north, and they become known as the tribe of Israel, ironically. The two other tribes, Judah and what? Levi, right? I knew that, Benjamin, thank you. Went south, and they became known as the kingdom of Judah, or the Davidic kingdom. And the Davidic line continues to rule over the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, from its capital in Jerusalem. But ironically, the northern kingdom, Israel, ultimately comes to nothing and is defeated by the Assyrians. It's exiled and it's extinguished from history. The people once again turn from God and ultimately everything ends in ruins. The people are in exile. The, people's been defeated. the land has been defeated. The kingdom is in ruins. The king is in captivity. The temple has been destroyed. But in the southern kingdom, the dynasty of David continues despite their sin, despite the brokenness, because of God's pro a covenant promise to David that we just read in 2 Samuel 7. It's only the power and sovereignty of God that preserves David's line, moving it towards fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God's plan of salvation and blessing of the nation is tied to the line of David. And the storyline of the Bible points to a time when his ransom people would be drawn from every tribe and language and people and nation. All across the globe to a time when God will live within them by his spirit. That I think that Jason is probably going to talk about in some of the, the prophecies next week. We see in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So why did God take this route of bringing salvation to his people? Couldn't he have just done it? I mean, why did he have to wait thousands of years to redeem us? We live in a broken place. There's so much brokenness in this town. There's so much brokenness in our families. There's so much sin in our marriages. There's so much disease. Why doesn't he just come back? It took him that period of time between Adam and Eve's first sin and Jesus in the manger, I believe, so that he could show to us that salvation is nothing, has nothing to do with us. It's all by his grace and power. Do you see that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16? That all those people, all those hoops, so to speak, all those uh, walls that needed to be knocked down in order to bring Jesus, they were all part of his plan. They were all part of his sovereign plan. He knew that every one of those obstacles was going to be in the way. But now we're waiting. As you look at that baby in the manger, as you, uh, we've got, I think we've got a manger out there. As you look at the, the baby in the manger, I want you to remember, as we're, as we're told in, in Philippians, 
that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That from the beginning of time, he knew that we would choose to sin. And he knew that the only way for us to be restored back into a right, right relationship with our Creator was for Jesus to not consider himself equal with God, but to empty himself. To become fully man while he's fully God and to be born in a lowly manger. And then to live the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. That's what this story's about. The reason that all this happened is because we are imperfect. But he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserve to die. He took our place. So if you're here this morning and you um, and, the, and the wheels are starting to click and you go, wow, I guess I can't be good enough. I guess that, that um, but all this goodness that I'm doing um, isn't going to bring ultimate happiness and blessing. Can I encourage you that Jesus Christ came that he'd emptied himself so that he could bring salvation to you and I. And, and all we need to do is to acknowledge our sinfulness, that our heart is exceedingly wicked and beyond repair, and to put our faith and trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And brothers and sisters, for most of you, if not all of you, who have already grabbed a hold of that, who have already been rescued, stand in that truth. If you're having a hard time this Advent season like connecting to Christmas, remember that you were once an enemy when God made you a friend. Amen? Let's pray. God, we bless you. We thank you um, for blessing us. I thank you that uh, we uh, in this room, most of us, if not all of us, um, are Gentiles that were grafted in. And I thank you that your promise to Eve and your promise to Noah and Moses, Abraham, David, Isaac, Jacob, all of them, your promise was for us. And I thank you that there's uh, nothing that we could do to grab a hold of that promise other than believe. That we, were, um, that we couldn't be good enough and that it was only through your perfect life and sacrificial death that we could be restored back into relationship with you in your place, living under your good rule and enjoying your great blessings. So God, we, uh, we praise you and we worship you. And we pray these things in the priceless and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and close our